Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us at the podcast today. I just finished Skyping with James Ben to talk about his new book, Tea in China, A Religious and Cultural History. This came out in 2015 with the University of Hawaii Press. Now, the book really nicely pushes back against two prevailing assumptions or tendencies that um, kind of tend to characterize histories of and with tea. One is a tendency to focus on the latter part of tea history, and that is um, often materialized in a story that takes place in the 19th century and beyond and really emphasizes tea as a global commodity. The other is a tendency to push the history of tea back into antiquity and tell stories about a kind of ancient origin of the tea plant that associates it with different national contexts, and in particular with China. So instead, what we have here is a history of tea that's really got its center of gravity in the Tang, Song, um, and Ming dynasties, mostly focusing on the Tang and Song, that offers us a glimpse of tea as a, an object or a series of objects, perhaps, a series of practices, of images, of verse, of, of prose renderings in all different shapes and sizes. That's really about the cultural and religious significance of practices and and materials associated with tea. So what the book does is it shows us not just um, the importance of the interweaving of the narratives of Buddhist practice, Buddhist text, and tea in China, but it also gives us a way of understanding how those narratives first became intertwined and why it's important for us to understand them as intertwined. So as you listen to the interview to come, you'll hear us talking about all kinds of really fascinating sources that James brings to bear in writing this study. And those include um, texts, uh, prose texts of all sorts. There's a really fascinating text um, that's actually a debate between Mr. T and Mr. Alcohol that you'll hear about. You'll hear about poems. You'll hear about paintings. Um, you'll hear about treatises on tea, Buddhist texts, Japanese texts, um, and lots of others. So I hope you enjoy. Thanks very much as ever for your support and for listening to the channel. And I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy of the book because there's a lot in there that we don't have a chance to talk about in the hour to come. And there's also some really great primary source material that's translated that makes the book, um, as you'll hear me talking about in the moments to come, a really great resource for those of us who are teaching tea history or, or global history, um, pre-modern history, history of beverages, materia medica, materia dietetica, um, in lots of different course contexts. So thank you and enjoy. I'm here today to talk with James Ben about his new book, Tea in China, A Religious and Cultural History. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, James, and thanks for making time to talk with me today and for writing also a really fascinating book on tea in China. Welcome to the channel. 
Hello, Carla. It's an honor and a pleasure to be talking with you today. So, James, let's start at the beginning, um, as <laughs> is typical for the channel. And here goes. How did you come to work on the history of China? Why China and why China from a historical perspective? All right. So this is a, a long story that takes us way back into the distant past. Um, I began studying Chinese at the age of 18 um, in England, which is where I did my initial education. That's basically how we begin. We we don't have majors or anything like that. You pick something and, and start studying it at university. So um, at age 18, I didn't know very much about China, but I knew that there were a lot of books there. And as a child, I was very worried that I was going to run out of reading material uh, written in English. And so I thought that if I studied another language and a language in which there were a lot of books written, I would never have to worry about running out of books. So uh, at the age of 18, I went to Cambridge University and, and started working on Chinese. And from there on, uh, it was a, a question of taking various forks in the path. So at a certain point in in the Chinese course in Cambridge, as it was configured in those days, you, you got to choose between basically modern Chinese or the Han Dynasty, early China, or uh, the middle period, Tang China. And so I opted for Tang China, uh, thinking that that was rather safely in the middle. There seemed to be enough to, to think about uh, with Tang China. The early China seemed too early. Um, I, I probably made the wrong decision in retrospect because now early China is where all the action is, but still I opted for Tang China. And in those days, there were two people uh, responsible for teaching Tang China, uh, David McMullen, uh, who taught administrative uh, history of the Tang, and uh, Tim Barrett, who taught intellectual history. So I went, in, I went into it with an open mind, and having spent a bit of time with, with both of them, I realized that David McMullen basically knew everything there was to know about the administrative history of, of Tang China. Um, there, was, there was really no place in which I could make a contribution because he, he really had it covered. And I, I believe he still does. I, 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 don't think it's, I still don't think it's possible to make a contribution in that area. But uh, working with Tim Barrett, it was, it was very obvious that we knew very little about the intellectual world of, of Tang China. We knew only a tiny amount, really, about the world of ideas and about religion. So uh, that's where I started working on, on Chinese religions. And the first things that I read in, in Buddhism and Taoism were things written by Chinese people. So I had no real exposure to Chinese religions other than what I was reading written in Chinese. And from then on, it was, you know, basically a, a question of following that path. Um, I have an MA in Religious Studies from SOAS, University of London, the School of Oriental and African Studies. So I worked on, um, actually, I worked on this topic there. I worked on tea in China as part of my MA. <laughs> and then I went on to a PhD at UCLA uh, where I worked on Chinese Buddhism. So uh, a series of choices and, and dating a long way back in my personal history. 
So the book that we're talking about today, as you've um, already kind of alluded to, is a history of tea, and tea specifically as a religious and cultural commodity in China. And this is before it became a global commodity in the 19th century. So there's a lot of material out there um, increasingly that looks at tea um, as a kind of global commodity in, in the 19th century and beyond. And this is very deliberately situated as a story that takes us into the really fascinating history that comes before. It focuses on the Tang and the Song dynasties, um, but it extends earlier and a bit later. And one of the last chapters takes us into the Ming and a kind of uh, an environment of connoisseurship in the Ming. And we'll get to that um, by the end of our conversation, I hope. So you just mentioned um, that you worked on tea a little bit for your MA. How did you come back to this for this project? And um, at what point did you decide this was going to be a book-length monographic project for you? So uh, I always knew from the moment that I started working on it for the MA that that this was a topic that deserved treatment at length because I could see that there was a wealth of material and a wealth of ideas that hadn't really been stitched together to tell the story about tea as a, as a religious and cultural commodity. So not just uh, the story of tea as, as a question of economics or agriculture, but really to look at the world of ideas, uh, the world of religious uses and, uh, and concepts around tea. So my intention really was to, was to pursue this topic immediately after the MA and into the PhD. I took a slight detour, um, as some, some of your listeners might know, into the study of self-immolation in Chinese Buddhism. Uh, but uh, my intention was always to, to return to the, to the topic of tea. Uh, the, I knew that it was going to be a long project because there's so much secondary scholarship on Chinese tea written by Chinese scholars that it's almost impossible to keep up to date with. There are literally thousands of articles that come out on various topics associated with tea every year in Chinese. So I knew that the material was there. I knew that uh, plenty of Chinese scholars were working on various aspects of the story. And also I knew that, that I had a pretty unique perspective on it, that trying to look at it from the religious point of view was was taking an approach that, that other people hadn't really thought through yet. So that's that's pretty much the point at which I decided that this was going to be a book and that it was going to take a long time to write. So as you've kind of already um, described a little bit, the approach that the book takes to tea as a religious and a cultural commodity is really, really important and distinguishes it from um, some other work on tea, right, that exists contemporaneously. The first chapter of the book really goes into that, right? It talks about um, the significance, among other things, of understanding tea as a religious and cultural commodity specifically, and the sort of um, what we can get from using that frame to understand tea in China. Now, I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about that now, because I think as we talk over the course of the hour, rather than explaining it and articulating it now, it'll become clear to listeners, right, how and why that particular frame actually does help us understand something important that we might not understand otherwise. Now, the book demonstrates, and you lay this out also in chapter one, that a shift to drinking tea in China, in the words of the book, brought with it a total reorientation of Chinese culture. Um, so we're going to see that play out in the chapters to come. 
Chapter two um, looks at the sources for the history of tea before the Tang Dynasty. It looks critically at later claims that tea originated in Chinese antiquity. And there's a lot of material out there, right? You know, from the dawn of time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And this is a chapter that's really pushing against that. Now, let's actually kind of jump in at this point, and specifically at the point of um, understanding what sources are available and really what the challenges are for trying to get a handle on um, what did or might have existed for understanding tea in this period. What are some for you of the particular challenges of looking for and trying to work with the earliest possible textual references to tea pre-Tom? So one of the big uh, challenges is really that the, the character that's used for, for tea, cha, uh, is a character that doesn't actually stabilize until Tang times. So you find that uh, when you try to look into the earlier sources, um, the, the, the object that you're seeking, seeking kind of dissipates in front of your eyes because the, the terminology itself is not stable. So you get various other terms which could possibly apply to tea, but might actually apply to other substances, in some cases completely unrelated to tea. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to trace some of these earlier references and because in a lot of cases those early sources have been uh, not, they don't come down to us untouched, but they've been edited by later hands. And so, you know, real terms that do apply to tea may have been inserted later on into those texts so that it looks as if they refer to tea. And when you go back to the earliest form of the text that we have, you find that perhaps it's it's a lot more ambiguous than that. So this is this is really the issue is that you, you don't have a stable term for the for the thing that you're seeking. Um, you don't really have references to, to tea in the in the Chinese classics, the kind of places that you would go to normally to look for early discussions of a of a substance or a beverage. And the archaeological evidence, the, the other kind of evidence that you might use is, is still pretty inconclusive. Uh, there does seem to be archaeological evidence that may indicate deliberate cultivation of tea plants, but again, it's, it's, it's difficult to be certain that's exactly what's going on. And if you do have deliberate cultivation of tea plants, that doesn't mean that you have a widespread uh, tea consumption and a widespread tea culture. So it, it, it was pretty difficult to do. Uh, and, and this is really how you see a tea culture basically being invented in Tang times. Uh, so 7th and 8th century, you see people try to look back on the, on the history of, of, the, of the sources about this substance that they're all drinking and enjoying and trying to create a history for it and finding that there really isn't a lot there. And this is one of the challenges of doing any kind of history of materia medica, materia dietetica, plants, animals, anything like that, right? There's simultaneously um, a kind of widespread assumption because there's so much of a narrative around an ancient history of blah, blah, blah in Chinese history that there should be an earliest version, an origin story about um, ginseng, tea, mm-hmm. alcohol, etc. Um, but when you're actually trying to look, um, what are you looking for? Like, what is the object and how can you necessarily identify and equate a, a term for a reference from like a fourth century text with, you know, a, 
plant growing out of the ground right now. Um, so, yeah, I, I totally get that. And I think it's a really important historiographical issue to bring to our attention. And another actually really interesting and I, I think fascinating historiographical problem that you point to in this chapter is the kind of challenge and opportunity of reading for absence, right? Right. You talk about the significance of an absence of references to tea in some sources where you would expect to find it, like the Wenshan, right? Right. Can you talk about that? Because that's also, as a historiographical problem, really, really interesting to think about. Okay, so the Wenshan um, uh, is probably the most important literary collection for, for, for medieval China. Um, it's the equivalent, basically, of the Bible and Shakespeare, I guess, in terms of the, in terms of the number of important references that it includes. And it's often, you know, a kind of repository of, of, of data that the historians will go to to see, well, how did medieval people understand X or Y? Um, it's a collection of uh, prose and poetry pieces, so it's very extensive uh, collection. And you would expect that something um, that we would imagine to be as ubiquitous as tea, something that people are consuming um, apparently on a daily basis, uh, that there would be trade upon, that there would be an aesthetics of, that there would be a culture around, uh, is entirely absent from that collection. So that's a, that's a strong indicator to me that that this is something that people aren't writing about, that they don't, doesn't really seem to appear on people's horizon of knowledge as, as part of the thing that they should know about. And if you contrast that with the Tang, if you contrast that with 7th and 8th centuries and look at literary collections there, and especially uh, collections of poetry, you see this very sudden appearance of, of tea, um, people discussing it in multiple ways. So putting those two sources side by side and thinking, well, here we have a, here we have a, a snapshot of a literary culture in the Wenxuan and it, and, and tea doesn't appear to be in it. Here we have a, another slightly later snapshot and tea appears to be everywhere. Then, then this is a strong indicator to me that there's a, there's a cultural shift in between those two time periods. Now, one kind of source, um, that, uh, for which there is a really interesting record, uh, or within which there is a really interesting record and account of tea use, um, is medieval anomaly account, right? So you talk right. here about the importance of tea in medieval Chinese anomaly accounts, jiguai and, and related kinds mm -hmm. of literature. For you, um, in, in terms of just your personal sense of this, right, what's most important um, and most interesting for us to gain from or sort of um, understand about tea in medieval anomaly accounts? What's most important and, and kind of most fascinating about that? Okay, so to me, um, the, the appearance of uh, tea in these medieval anomaly accounts are, you know, uh, records of strange happenings, strange people, strange places, um, strange occurrences, is, is not the kind of glancing reference to, to, to people consuming tea or seeing tea, but the kind of odd indications that you get that, uh, that, that tea plants were somehow numinous things that grew in strange and unusual places that might be protected by the things that that are not quite human, so kind of wild people. Um, 
the the properties of tea um, within people's lives as as a as a substance that they might consume that might lead to altered states, um, especially properties of tea to, to, to transform the body. And these are the kind of themes that you see picked up later on in, in Tang literature. So really the kind of, you know, uncanny and unexpected side of, of the tea plant and, and tea as a beverage in these very early anomaly accounts where you don't really have, you know, a fully worked out, a fully developed tea culture. So as we move into the third chapter, we move into a chapter that looks at the importance of Buddhist ideas, individuals, and institutions. This is in the words of the book, in the development of tea during the Tang Dynasty. Now, in the 8th and ninth centuries, as this chapter shows, tea moved into a cultural place that had been occupied solely by alcohol. And you demonstrate here that late medieval Chinese literature saw what you call a new enthusiasm for tea and an anxiety about the dangers of alcohol and intoxication. And here we come to um, another of the super fabulous sources that you're introducing us to um, in introducing us to this history of tea. And this is a text called the Cha Jiu Lun. And this is a debate between a Mr. Tea and a Mr. Alcohol with a kind of added bonus character that comes in at the end. So, James, um, can you, for listeners who may not be familiar about this text, um, say a little bit about the nature of this text and, for you, um, what's most important about it for helping us understand what's happening in this period of tea history? All right. So so what we have here is uh, a fantastically lively piece of of vernacular literature that survives only in a in a single manuscript. Um, it's uh, an imagined uh, fictional dialogue between these two characters, Mr. T and Mr. Alcohol. Um, and so they put their, their arguments for their own value, um, they, they perform as the, as the characters of tea and alcohol and talk about their own, their own values, their own qualities. So it, it really tells you a lot about how people were thinking about the qualities of tea and the qualities of alcohol actually in competition with each other. And we see here a, a fairly well developed sense on the part of Mr. T about his own about his own worth, um, about, and he talks very explicitly about some of the things that are developed elsewhere in the book, the idea of tea as a pure gift, the idea of the tea uh, as being able to sober people up, um, the idea of tea uh, as a luxury product, um, and um, being able to, to pit the qualities of tea against this very venerable substance, Mr. Alcohol, which had been used for social lubrication and ritual purposes since, since time immemorial. So we, we really see embodied here, you know, the, the actual competition between tea as this relatively new substance that was designed to promote clear headedness and sober thought against you know, the, the, the somewhat wild, intoxicating qualities of alcohol. Um, it's, if you read nothing else, uh, in the book, then you should turn immediately, I think, to the debate between Mr. T and Mr. Alcohol, because it, it really is fantastically lively. It's very kind of easy to understand. You don't need to learn a lot of uh, technical language in order to enjoy the thing. Uh, very vivid examples that are being given. So I, I think that. 
this could easily have been performed in medieval times. And you can imagine the audience getting really involved in the, in the debate between the two. As you alluded to, um, of course, nobody quite wins the debate between Mr. T and Mr. Alcohol because a third character intervenes, Mr. Water, and uh, he basically wins the debate by trying to uh, settle down the other two and, and say that there's no need for the two of them to fight. But, but as I show in the book, you know, there is this, there is this kind of shift, a uh, cultural shift from alcohol to tea. So in some senses, you know, Mr. T wins that debate in some ways. And speaking of performance, I highly recommend any listeners who are teaching um, Chinese history, history of medicine or drugs, global history, to actually do a performance of this text in class, which I have done, um, because, among other things, you get to make gratuitous A-team references and speak the voice of Mr. T, like the A-team Mr. T, and who doesn't love that? Exactly. That's, yeah, perfect. That's an important take-home. (laughs) <laughs> history. Um, so this is a super fascinating text. Um, and you take us in this chapter further into um, this history that increasingly is going to be blending um, and resonating between um, Buddhist practices and ideas and texts and individuals and tea. And one of the things that you show here um, in offering us this broader history of tea and alcohol in this context is that tea, uh, not tea, but alcohol is simultaneously proscribed in Buddhist texts, right? You're not supposed to drink it, but nevertheless was what you call a defining feature of the religious practice of lay Buddhist societies and really part of everyday consumption at some Mm -hmm. monasteries. So can you talk about that um, kind of relationship between alcohol and Buddhist contexts? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, one of the things that we think we know about Buddhism is that it is that it bans the consumption of alcohol. Um, and, you know, this is one of the points that I make in the book is that this is really an important cultural marker for, for the Buddhist practitioners. But inevitably, when we start looking at the social reality of, of what Buddhist institutions were actually like, um, we find that alcohol plays a, a somewhat more complex role. Uh, we're lucky enough to, to have some materials from Dunhuang um, that, are, that are basically uh, shopping lists, actually, for, for monasteries. And so we find scribbled on the back of, of, of other texts at Dunhuang uh, the various things that, that need to be uh, brought for the monastery. And including, including these lists are, are large quantities of alcohol. Um, so it seems that Buddhist monasteries were places that that needed to have alcohol. Uh, there's some speculation that, that alcohol was used actually as a form of payment for uh, lay people working in the monastery, the monastery who hadn't actually taken precepts, and so therefore it's okay. But but I have seen at least one shopping list that says, you know, the a, a distinguished monk from another monastery is is coming to visit next week, and therefore we should order extra alcohol this week, um, which seems to indicate that that alcohol was being used socially within the monastery too and we also know that lay societies at Dunhuang so these would have been uh, would have been groups of of lay practitioners usually led by an ordained monastic uh, also regularly used alcohol in their in their gatherings Um, and so you know alcohol was a was an important social lubricant even within Buddhist societies. So 
So as as is usually the case, you know, the, there's a difference between precept and practice. I think most of us in Buddhist studies are, are fairly comfortable with that idea. And that once you start digging down into the material about people's everyday lives, we find that, you know, uh, the picture is somewhat more complicated than we might say from on high. And speaking of digging into the material, uh, we won't talk about this in detail, but one of the other really interesting things happening in this chapter um, is that you're showing us the potential possibilities, but also um, frustrations in looking for um, evidence of tea history in material culture. Um, so you talk about these perils and possibilities in the context of a particular scroll, um, or a particular painting, rather, mm-hmm. um, and also in the case of surviving imperial teaware of the Dharma Gate Monastery. So there's really interesting things happening in this chapter around material culture um, as evidence for this kind of history as well. And speaking of um, really fascinating ways to read um, sources that you might not immediately think of as evidence for a history of tea, we come now to the next chapter. Now, the Tang Dynasty saw really an explosion of or an outpouring of verse that was dedicated to tea. And chapter four looks very closely at Tang tea poetry to understand this phenomenon and also to consider what we might gain from looking at poetry as a source of evidence for understanding tea history. So, James, this is a really interesting chapter. Can you start us off by really saying um, just a little bit about how you came to understand this kind of source as a source for the story that you were telling? So I, I, I came upon um, the importance of tea poetry in Tang China uh, for this project with, with some reluctance because um, as an undergraduate, I was a notoriously bad reader of Tang poetry. And I, I think my I think my teachers must be horrified that, that I dared to take on uh, Tang poetry for, for this chapter. But basically, I had no choice because uh, a lot of the story that this book wants to tell is about the creation of a, of a new culture and a new aesthetic around tea and the ideas, the concepts, uh, terminology that are used to talk about tea as a, basically as a, as a new substance. Um, and really the, the hotbed of creativity where this was happening is actually in, in Tong poetry. Um, for those of your readers who are not familiar with the importance of, of poetry during the Tang, the, the ability to compose poetry was something that was expected basically of all educated people, meaning all educated men and in some cases educated women too, um, so that we would expect most people to be involved in the um, exchange and reading and writing of poetry at the elite level uh, in which a lot of this creativity is going on. So, but when you, when you look at the corpus of surviving Tang poetry, it really is quite extraordinary. The, the spike in uh, tea poetry, and there's virtually no tea poetry prior to the Tang, um, and the extraordinary amount of creativity that you find brought to the, to the subject and diversity of, of views. And you, you really do find not the most detailed discussions of, of religious and cultural ideas around tea occurring in poetry, but some of the most vivid and striking examples of, of the importance of tea consumption going on there. So I, I really had no 
option other than to to talk about tongue tea poetry at some length um and you know actually to to be bold enough to to provide my own translations of uh, of a lot of this material um so it 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 really was an absolutely vital source for the book now one of the poems um specifically that you pay attention to is a levi poem um, that you translate as responding to a gift of transcendence palm tea from Yuchen sent from my nephew, the monk Zhongfu, with preface. Can you maybe open up the importance of this poem a little bit? Um, why is this so important for the chapter and, and what are you particularly fascinated by in this poem? So this is a lovely example of the intermingling of, of tea connoisseurship with uh, religious and, and cultural ideas. So it's it's uh, a poem about a gift. So um, throughout the book, I talk about the importance of tea as a pure gift between monastics and uh, literati. In this case, um, it's the literatus who's receiving the gift. And it's a very specific kind of tea. It's called transcendence palm tea because um, it's a form of tea that when the uh, leaves dry and, and form together, they, they form the shape of a human hand, um, you know, a kind of rather elongated human hand. Um, but this was called transcendence palm tea because of the nature of the quality of the, uh, of the look of the thing. Um, it's 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 an extraordinary poem, and it has a, a has a very detailed preface, um, which talks about the the nature of the the tea itself, um, where this tea grows, and it grows in in what's described as a as a very magical place, um, actually in a system of of caverns uh, that have jade springs, and in those. In those caverns live white bats the size of ravens, according to the preface, um, and that these bats are supposed to be fantastically long-lived and their bodies turn white with time. So the, the tea comes from this, this magical place. It has these kind of amazing properties to, to prolong life. Um, so that the tea is coming from a, a Buddhist monk, but a lot of the description about the quality of of the tea belongs to the the literature and the aesthetic of Taoism. Um, it's about you know youthfulness, transcendence, those kinds of things. Um, so the 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 preface and the paint and the uh, poem itself paint this amazing picture of of tea as really a kind of otherworldly substance, something that belongs to almost the supernatural realm. Um, and, you know, partly this is, this is kind of hyperbole. It's, you know, he's responding to a, a, a gift of, of a very rare tea. But at the same time, I think there's, you know, there's a good deal of seriousness here that, that, that you're pointing to the qualities of tea and its ability to transform the spirit and transform the body and reaching for, for the language of religious Taoism to do so. And that, that was a very nice example for me of the of the ways in which people try to make sense of this beverage, try to make sense of its properties, and often, you know, create a narrative around tea that, that points to uh, otherworldly times and places, and points very specifically to to religious practices as providing meaning. And that actually brings us really nicely into the next chapter, um, in, in terms of pointing to religious practices and their association with tea. 
So chapter five is dedicated to the life and work of Lu Yu, someone who has been called the god of tea, right? And compiler of the world's first book on tea. Now this chapter focuses on understanding the connections that Lu Yu made between tea and religious practices. So he spent his childhood in a monastery, um, and you talk here um, very much about the ways that Buddhist resonances are kind of shaping what's happening in the text and, and the kind of larger implications of that for what happens afterwards. And we see actually the resonances of that for um, what happens later as we move through the rest of the chapters of the book. But in the meantime, let's talk about Lu Yu and his text. Can you talk about um, who he was and his background in terms of what we need to understand about the way that his interest in Buddhism shaped the association of tea with religion in his text. Okay, so Lu Yu is is probably a genius, I think, uh, in terms of the terms of the ambition of his work and in terms of his of his own background. Um, he was an orphan. He was brought up in a in a Buddhist monastery by his adopted father, who was a, a Buddhist monk. Um, Despite later claims to the contrary, he, he remained very close to his uh, adopted father throughout his life and uh, memorialized him after after his death. There are later attempts to kind of recast Lu Yu as a much more sort of neo-Confucian figure who didn't didn't really have much truck with Buddhism, but but that doesn't actually seem to be true at all. Um, like a lot of people of his generation, he um, was displaced by the Anlushan Rebellion, which was a massive rebellion that swept across Tang China, um, as massively disrupted to to uh, society, and you know allowed new spaces for for new kind of cultural forms. Uh, he's also uh, somebody one of the earliest figures to compose an autobiography in Chinese history, and it's a very kind of uh, eccentric um, and idiosyncratic autobiography in which he talks about himself in the in the third person as this kind of uh, wild, wandering hermit kind of figure. Um, but a lot of his associations, uh, as he's writing the classic of tea, are with uh, poets and thinkers who have allegiance both to both to Buddhism and to Taoism. So I think a, a consciousness about uh, the religious meaning of, of tea is never far from his book. But one of the things that, that really makes him a genius is that it, it's not very overt in the in the classic of tea at all. It doesn't it doesn't have a particularly overt religious message. Um, it's just that it's so well constructed as a description of tea and its properties and how it's grown and how to make it that it was an immensely successful work. And that really, you know, the, the religious connotations of the thing are, are very subtle. They're woven in in terms of the uh, anomaly accounts and things that he chooses and uh, some of the language that, that he chooses to write about tea. Um, but he doesn't really borrow very overtly from, from either the language of Buddhism or from Taoism. Now, one of the really um, interesting things happening here, or perhaps interesting for listeners who are used to the, you know, Tetley or Murchie's tea bag, you know, in the cup with the hot water and you steep it and then um, you throw it out, is the way that he actually suggested making tea. And his way of making tea involved a result that had this kind of frothy head on it. Right. It's sort of like, it makes you think of beer. Um, <laughs> tea. Um, can you just talk about that a little bit? Like, what was it to make tea for him? 
Okay, so um, uh, you, you start with a, a cake of tea. Um, you're going to toast that tea. You're going to grind it up so you produce a very, a very fine powder. Um, then you're heating the water for tea in a, in a round cauldron, um, and you actually add a pinch of salt to it. A lot of people will, will tell you not to do that nowadays, but um, he has reasons for, for doing so. Um, it's thought to enhance the flavor, and it, and it softens the water um, a little bit. Um, so when you've when you've boiled the tea, and there are various kind of poetic descriptions for the various stages of, of boiling the tea, fish eyes, strung pearls, those kinds of things. Um, and then you um, make a kind of little whirlpool in the boiling water and introduce your powdered tea, stirring the water with the tongs. And then you ladle out this tea that you've made in a cauldron, uh, ladle it out into bowls, and making sure, um, as if you were in a pub in Amsterdam or something like that, that there's a requisite amount of froth on top of each one. So it's, you know, it's a very aesthetic uh, moment, the, the enjoyment of this kind of frothiness on, on top of the thing. So you, one, of the, one of the things that, that is clear uh, throughout the book is that methods of making tea have, have changed very dramatically across time. And, uh, you know, the thing that we calmly uh, consume as tea today is it would scarcely have been recognizable to, to some of these time figures who were consuming something that was probably a much more vivid green um, and, uh, you know, had a, had a kind of frothy head on it. And you talk, I mean, going back to what you were saying a little bit earlier about the challenges of the terminology, it might be early history of tea. It seems like tea was actually consumed as a kind of soup. Yes, that's soup, right. Right. So mm-hmm. um, it, there's a lot of really interesting material history here of, of what um, the ways that tea has been consumed um, as a beverage and um, as sort of other sorts of things. Um, and this actually also leads us nicely into the next chapter. Speaking of beverages, <laughs> um, chapter six takes us into the Song Dynasty, and it situates tea culture in the Song Dynasty within a larger culture of beverage consumption at the time. Now, the Song period, as you you put it um, here in the book, was crucial in the history of tea, among other reasons, for the opening up of certain areas as sort of um, sources for tea, as places that we think about now when we think about tea, including um, you mentioned the opening up of Fujian as a source for tribute tea sent to the imperial court. You also talk about the importance of other kinds of spaces, particularly Buddhist monasteries, for cultivating, processing, and consuming tea in the Song. So I'm going to ask you a little bit um, about that particular kind of context. One of the really interesting things that's happening um, at these Buddhist monasteries is something that you also situate more broadly, and that's a way of consuming tea alongside other kinds of beverages and specifically other kinds of medicinal decoctions um, in Song monastic life and also more broadly. So that's what I'd love to hear um, you uh, speak a little bit to, understanding tea alongside um, medicinal concoctions and other kinds of beverages in the context of Song life. Okay, so as as we've talked about a little bit so far, um, the original conception of the of the book was that you know tea replaces alcohol as as the beverage of choice, and uh, and that's one that's one 
story that's told in the book. When we get to the Song Dynasty, things become actually a lot more complicated in a way that, that I hadn't really appreciated at the outset of the book. And this really um, becomes evident when we look at the patterns of consumption that go on in in. Uh, some Buddhist monasteries, you know, according to regulations and uh, with some archaeological evidence to back it up. So it seems that that in the Buddhist monastery, uh, monastics were consuming not just tea, but various health-giving medicinal decoctions, often not really medicine per se, but something kind of roughly equivalent to health tonics or or the kinds of energy drinks that, that we might consume today. So uh, we see people not only consuming tea, but decoctions made out of tangerine peel, this is a very common one, or mountain yam. Um, so so we know that these kinds of things are, are being consumed in the monastery. And then when we start to look outside of the, of the Buddhist monastery and look into larger Sung society and especially urban society, it turns out that this is part of a, 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 a more widespread craze uh, for decoction consumption so that there are a wide varieties of, of, of kind of, you know, everyday uh, health-giving preparations that are being made uh, out of powder, often served in little kind of single-serving packets, so very kind of convenient forms of, of decoction consumption. And so so we think about tea as being kind of, you know, becoming the natural drink of China and, and sweeping alcohol before it and taking its, taking its rightful place in the center of beverage culture. But actually, when we look at at Sung Dynasty times, it's it's a much more kind of open marketplace in terms of the nature of things that that people are consuming. Um, you know, decoctions made out of cardamom and banksia rose, peppermint, uh, magnolia bark, black cardamom, fennel, all those kinds of things. And a lot of these um, decoctions have you know kind of trade names that they're that they're sold under. So at the same time, well. Slightly earlier, you have a, a real craze for tea happening in the Tang, and then you have, you know, kind of a craze for decoction happening, um, certainly in urban societies in the in the Song, and tea has to kind of, you know, rise above that too. And one of the really interesting things that you're pointing us to in this chapter as well is something that, um, for me, was very surprising, right? I mean, we it, it's not unusual to point to a beverage culture um, or to point to the importance of understanding the material culture of the history of a beverage, right? Tea cups, mm-hmm. ceramics, right. um, or, or uh, history of tobacco, right? People are very interested in snuff mm-hmm. bottles and pipes. But what's less common, I mean, what was actually quite surprising for me here was the way that you're situating tea within a larger ecology of consumables. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the pills, right, that uh, in Song monasteries that you would take with tea, like the other kinds of things that you would be consuming in the forms of those consumables um, that were part of this tea ecology are really, really interesting. And did you want to speak to that at all? Um, again, it's one of those things that, that is rather surprising. You know, we think we understand what drinking a cup of tea is. We may have a kind of vision of uh, monks sitting in, you know, orderly circumstances, uh, quietly, consu- quietly consuming their tea. But, but when you look at uh, monastic regulations, which are fantastically detailed about the serving of tea and the things that, that go with it, you know, often we find that, that 
um, people aren't just drinking tea, but they're also, you know, washing down uh, these sort of medicine pills that are designed to, to fortify the body um, alongside the, the tea that they're consuming. So it, it gives us an insight not only into, as you say, the ecology of tea, the, the wider realm in which this substance is being consumed, but also, you know, something of the bodily physical culture of, of the, of the sun Buddhist monastery, that this is a place where, you know, people cared about health and vitality in, in rather particular ways and had institutional responses to it. So again, it was, you know, a, an area in which I, didn't expect to go into in the book, but but turns out to be crucial to understanding the actual nature of the consumption that goes on. Great. And not only do I salute that answer, but also Canada salutes that answer. You might have just heard a ship playing the beginning of O Canada outside my apartment. And so this is the moment in the interview where we give thanks to Canadian funding structures and to Canada for making research possible. O Canada. It's, it's always important to acknowledge the contribution of Shirk to research projects like this one. The Social Sciences Humanities Research Council of Canada always likes to be acknowledged in this context. Uh, so thanks, Shirk, for, for sponsoring the research on this one. And thank you to the boats outside my apartment for reminding us to do that. <laughs> but we're not done yet. Um, and as we move into the next chapter, um, we move actually into another text that's written by a Japanese writer. So chapter seven looks at tea culture as it was exported to Japan and considers how Japanese works might be used to understand tea in China. And it focuses on a particular work by a Japanese monk that you translate as drinking tea for nourishing life. Can you talk um, about this text? What for you is especially fascinating about this work? And for you, what was important um, about including a Japanese text in a book about tea in China. So um, this is a fascinating text. Uh, scholars of uh, esoteric Japanese Buddhism will will know it, but, but many of us uh, probably have not come across this before. Um, it was uh, a text written by uh, a Japanese monk, a uh, 12th century monk called Asai, um, and apparently written for uh, his feudal lord uh, at a time when his lord was uh, ill. And it's uh, it's really um, a propaganda piece for for the consumption of uh, tea in Japan, which was a place in the 12th century that really didn't know tea, so tea was was scarcely known as a product. Uh, Asai had been to China, had seen people consuming tea both in the monastery and outside of the monastery, so he knew a bit about the topic, and he was convinced that that. The specific flavor of tea was something that Japanese people lacked and that their health was likely to suffer as a consequence for it. So he wrote this text really to, to publicize um, the, the importance of tea. If you actually exam start examining the, the text in detail, um, you'll find it has other interesting things inside it because it also talks about the importance of using mulberry as a decoction against um, uh, various forms of disease. So ASI talks about tea, um, the various, the names for it, what the tea plant looks like, what, 
what the function of tea is, time for picking tea, um, production of tea, those kinds of things. And then he also goes on to list various diseases and various cures for them using both mulberry and tea. Um, it seemed to me that this was just an absolutely fascinating text because it marries esoteric Buddhist theory, uh, use of mantras, mandalas, those kinds of things, with um, the promotion of a, of a new beverage in a very uh, self-conscious and quite unique way. Uh, and it seemed to me that historians of Chinese tea had, had perhaps not looked very closely at this because they consigned it more to the history of Japanese tea um, and hadn't looked to see what Asai actually has to say about about tea in China. He actually has some quite interesting things to say that he reports from his own knowledge of the cultivation of tea and his consumption of it in China. So it's something that I that I really wanted to, uh, to pick up on, um, even though, you know, it may not seem at first glance like it like it belongs in the book because it because it's written by a by a Japanese Buddhist monk. But I think it really provides, you know, a, a, a nice kind of outsider's perspective on on what's happening with with Chinese tea culture and again, the religious and cultural meaning of the beverage. One of the great things that the book does, um, specifically in this chapter, is it gives readers an opportunity to explore the text for themselves and to see for themselves um, some of the really interesting ways that this text is bringing together concerns with health and medicine, with tea culture, um, with Buddhist doctrine, um, etc., because you're actually giving us a translation of the text in this chapter. Um, so the, the end of this chapter includes a translation of the text. And so um, that's uh, really worth emphasizing here and marking for listeners because, among other things, it's one of the aspects of the text that makes it really useful, not just for reading and research, but also for teaching. Um, so I can imagine actually excerpting parts of this and assigning this book um, as a, you know, as a primary source and a lot of different kinds of courses to help students work through some of the sources for understanding the history of, um, of tea and of, kind of uh, China and of all kinds of things. Um, so listeners who are interested in that look carefully at the end of chapter seven and you'll find a translation of this text. But we're not done yet. There are still two chapters, and at, and at least one of them um, I want to make sure that we get to, um, because it looks at the Ming, which is one of my favorite dynasties. Um, <laughs> so chapter eight looks at the religious and cultural history of tea in late imperial China, and it focuses on the Ming period. Now, this chapter explores the kinds of teas that were particularly sought after that became particularly famous in the Ming. And you take us through um, a number of named teas. And this was all kind of part of a larger context of tea connoisseurship in this period. So there are a lot of people right now interested in uh, practices of connoisseurship in the Ming. And this chapter takes us into a very particular aspect of that connoisseurship. And as a result, a really, really interesting aspect of this history of tea. Now, there are a lot of different aspects of um, main kind of worship and its um, resonance with tea practices that we could talk about. Um, but one that I want to um, ask you about has to do with uh, a person, or not a person, but a character we talked about a little while ago, and that's Mr. Water. <laughs> we talk, um, so fast forwarding from that text to the Ming, 
You talk here um, quite a bit about the importance of water um, as it's emphasized uh, in connoisseurship texts as a part of appreciating and drinking tea. And specifically, water gets associated really interestingly with Buddhist monasteries. So, James, can you talk about any aspect of that that you feel is particularly interesting and important? Water, Ming connoisseurship, tea drinking, and Buddhist monasteries. Okay, so if we if we think back to Lu Yu's classic of tea, he's already talking about the the types of water that are appropriate to to, to use for for tea making. So, you know, water from mountain springs is much better than the water that you get uh, lower down the mountain. Um, uh, you know, the water that you take from the middle of a running stream is much superior to the water that you get at the at the edge. So. In a sense, the, the theme of, of the understanding of water and, and various types of water is, is already embedded in people's consciousness. I think in Ming times, it, it really gets kind of pushed to, to an extreme um, because of the high development of connoisseurship ar- around tea. And, you know, people are competing against very, very fine distinctions of, of tea growing and tea consumption. So, you know, they're talking about the, the properties of a tea grown uh, here as opposed to one that's grown, you know, maybe 10 meters away on the other side of the, of the mountain or tea grown in the shade as opposed to tea grown in the half shade, those kinds of things. And water and the aesthetics of, of water and water appreciation becomes another very important arena in which people can show their highly refined sensibilities and their, their highly refined taste. And so you get this, you know, a strong interest in, you know, the various types of water, the various qualities of water, and, you know, these tales about people having water, barrels of water imported from from far off places so that they can make exactly the kind of uh, right tea for their guests made with exactly the right, right form of water. So... In, I think it's very noticeable in Ming times, you get this massive expansion of, of literature around, around tea and then literature devoted to uh, various types of water. Um, it's, it's long been noted, I think, by scholars of Chinese Buddhism that, um, Buddhist monasteries are often situated in the mountains, they're often situated towards the top of mountains, and they often control vital springs within their uh, monastic grounds. So here again, we have uh, nice examples of you know, some of the most important springs for spring water, for tea connoisseurs, being on the grounds of Buddhist monasteries, and that this being you know, important opportunities for people, literati, to go to monasteries, they have reasons to visit there that are to do with connoisseurship, but of course, when they're there, there's also exchange with the uh, with the monks who are living there. Right. So there's a whole lot more that we could talk about um, in the context of this chapter and in the context of the book. But as we move to our conclusion, I just want to very briefly mention um, the conclusion of the book and then kind of bring us to a close. So there is also a conclusion, and I just want to kind of mark that for listeners. We won't have a chance to talk about that in any depth, but the conclusion does do important work in pointing to the ways that this history of tea can help us see the significance of um, the scales of idea, institution, and individual in collectively bringing together this story for us and helping us see tea and its significance in pre-modern China in a new way. 
So, James, there's a whole lot more that we could talk about, right? There's a ton of stuff in the book. I mean, we and we really just kind of scratched the surface here. But given that, is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? So uh, one of the things that, that I think um, would be an interesting direction for, for scholarship to go in is to, is to go back and see, you know, the kind of uh, fine-grained evidence for a lot of the claims that are made in the book um, because of the, you know, the real wealth of material that's probably preserved on the local level, uh, in local gazetteers on the textual side, and in actual places associated with tea production um, on the archaeological side, it would be really interesting to to go back in and and have a look at, uh, at what's preserved in the in the local records and in the archaeological evidence to to see you know what some of these changes look like um, on the on the local level. And really, this is a this is a book that tries to take a very long view. I mean, it, it spans many centuries, and you know it's trying to look at cultural change from through a through a long lens, but I think uh, I think there's a lot more to be said um, at the more kind of microscopic level that that I couldn't do in this book. And now that the book is out, um, what are you working on now? What's currently inspiring you, and, and what's your current research focused on? Okay, so I have two things. Um, one of them, I'm, I'm turning back to, to kind of old school Buddhist studies and uh, doing a translation and a study of a very important uh, Chinese Buddhist uh, scripture called the Shiram Gama Sutra, the scripture of the heroic march. Um, it's a scripture that's vitally important for the Chinese Buddhist tradition after the year 1000. Um, so... Uh, I'm doing an in-depth study of uh, scripture itself, its composition, its reception history, uh, its contents and ideas. Um, and then I have another project that is just in the kind of early developmental stages, and it's looking at uh, religion and military culture in medieval China, especially the Tang. So trying to understand uh, the, the worlds of... Uh, military people, their religious understandings, their dealings with the religious world, and then also, you know, martial and military imagery that occurs in Buddhist and Taoist texts, um, images, institutions, those kinds of things. So another kind of, you know, rather massive project. There's a lot to be said on that one. It's going to take me a long time, I think. Well, thanks so much for making time um, and taking time out of that work to talk with me about the book today. It's really been a pleasure, James, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Carla. It's been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.